If I didn't have to put up with this sickness, this health condition or issue, and the list goes on. If only this or that, then I would relax. Then I could do all the things I really wanted to do. Then I'd really be living life well. So today we are going to tackle this basic question. How do we be content? There is a wealth of material online and there's a lot of secular uh, knowledge that can help you. Uh, they you know, purport to tell you what it means to be content or happy and, and tell you the five or ten steps to find contentment. And while some of those uh, pieces of advice are actually quite good and generally, generally coherent with biblical pr- principles, they all really miss one massive factor. And as we're about to, s- to discover, that factor is, of course, God. Let me let you in on a little secret. Unless God is the source of our contentment, then nothing will truly satisfy us or bring that kind of purpose into our lives. What is the secret to being content? How can I find peace when there are so many sources of worry and stress in my life? Well, today I'm going to share with us three keys that I think can help us in learning the secret of being content. Firstly, being content doesn't depend on our circumstances. Secondly, God's strength enables us to be content. And thirdly, contentment comes from doing the will of God. I'm going to pray and then I'll invite Cass to come and read to us today's passage. Uh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us now. God, I know that you are challenging me and that you're going to challenge us to find our contentment in you. And God, while it may be very difficult for some of us, Father, I pray that we would heed what you have to say today, that God, we would yield to your spirit, and Father, that we would allow you to work in us. Father, I pray that you would be glorified and that we would honor you in our response. Father, help me to do this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Cass. Philippians 4, verses 10 to 20. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. I find it extraordinary that Paul is writing this letter from prison. Uh, If you followed Paul's life or his travels in Acts, you remember that he was threatened and attacked multiple times by the other Jewish leaders over his teachings. 
Uh, he was accused of defying the temple in Jerusalem and he was seized and nearly lynched by a mob. Just as he was about to be killed, the Roman guard intervened to restore order. He then was evacuated to Herod in Caesarea and after two years, because his case was never properly heard, he exercises his right as a Roman citizen and appeals to Caesar in Rome. He endures a harrowing sea voyage to Rome and is then subsequently imprisoned under house arrest. And it's roughly at this point where Paul is chained that he writes a number of his prison letters, including this one that we've just read from in Philippians. You would forgive a man for not having the brightest of spirits while being imprisoned and chained. Paul at this time is awaiting his trial and he actually doesn't know whether he's going to be executed or freed. We know, of course, that he will indeed be freed from this imprisonment, only later on to be arrested again and executed a few years later. On top of this, including his troubles, in chapter 1, verse 17, we read about those who are specifically trying to stir up trouble for him by preaching out of envy and rivalry. And yet, amidst his imprisonment, his deprivation and his poverty, Paul writes this letter to the Philippians, the most joyful of all his letters. He mentions the word joy 16 times, and as we looked at last week, he encourages us in Philippians 4.4 4, to rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. The key word in this verse is the word always. From a human perspective, there was not really much for Paul to be joyful about, and yet he encourages us, like him, to rejoice always. He says that he has learnt to be content whatever the circumstances. Verses 11 to 13, let me read it again. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learnt to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learnt the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. He knows what it is to be in need, but he also knows what it is to have plenty. And yet in either situation, whether well-fed or hungry, he knows what it is to be content. And that's because of this first key. That is, it does not depend on your circumstances. It doesn't matter what you've eaten or what you can't eat, whether you are sick or healthy, whether you're sailing with blue skies in open ocean or you're in the middle of a storm facing imminent shipwreck. You can be content whether you're in prison facing possible execution or holidaying in the Bahamas. And by the same token, being content doesn't depend on what material possessions you own, the income that you have or lack thereof. All around us, we're bombarded with ads selling stuff, fashion, clothes, shoes, jackets, cars, food, houses, property, technology, gadgets, products that will improve our lives. We're told that unless we have this thing, then we'll be missing out. Or sometimes we look at those around us, we compare ourselves to our friends or those that we work with, and we find it difficult to, to, make, uh, to, to understand how they can afford such things and we can't. How is it that they can afford such expensive cars or homes or holidays? It becomes all too easy for us to become jealous or envious of what others have, and we don't. Materially, Paul owned very little. In fact, he was very poor. 
As a missionary, he was sometimes able to meet his own needs by working as a tent maker. And while it was right for him to be supported by the church, he didn't want to place a financial burden on them, and so he set an example of being a hard worker. But here, in Rome, under arrest, aside from his writing materials and his clothes, there was probably not much else that he could put his name to. How then is it that Paul could say he was content? He clearly had many needs. In verse 11, he plainly states that he is in need. The difference between us and Paul is that Paul understood that being content is not a matter of having all your perceived needs and desires met. If you've ever thought, if I could just change this one thing, or if I could just have that one thing, then I'll be content, then being content will always elude you. Being content is neither a function of your external circumstances nor of what you do or do not own. I think there is this human tendency that we expect our lives to be more fulfilling or content if we achieve all our goals or acquire all our desires. If only I had this or that. If only things were different. But because contentedness is not dependent on our circumstances nor what we own, we need to stop looking for fulfillment in those things. Ultimately, those things will never satisfy us. If you're not content with what you have now, then acquiring more stuff or changing your external circumstances will likely not make you any more content. Look again at what Paul says, this time from the NLT in verse 12. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. Irrespective of his circumstances, Paul was able to find contentment. Adding or removing to his life, whether he had everything he could possibly want, or whether it was all taken away from him, even the most simplest of freedoms, neither of those things influenced the level of joy that he was able to experience. It then follows logically that if I want to find this same level of contentment that Paul describes, then it's not going to be brought about by changing my external circumstances. It's going to be, if it's going to be brought about by contentment in God. Now, before I go on, some of you might say to me, well, does that mean I shouldn't work on changing my situation? Does it mean that I should just accept that I'm going to be single and lonely forever because having a partner will never bring me contentment? Should I simply endure perhaps my abusive relationship, my dead-end job, my toxic work environment? Should I simply accept this illness or sickness and put up with it? And of course, the answer is no. Let me also clarify what being content is not. Being content does not mean that I no longer work on improving my existing situation. It doesn't mean that I should endure abuse from my boss or partner and not seek to change that. It doesn't mean that I don't look after myself and do what I need to do in order to get better. And if you're single and, if you're single and feeling lonely, it doesn't mean that you can't seek a godly relationship. Being content with your current situation is not an excuse to be complacent or to give up hope that things will change for you. Seeking change in those situations is not a problem, as long as it is done in submission to God's will. So by all means, seek God's intervention and his wisdom and his power to bring about change, but make sure you do it with God's strength and in his timing. Being content, however, does mean that if things don't change, if I have to put up with this situation, then ultimately I can find peace. I can be at rest even in those difficult situations, even in my lack, because God is the one who brings me contentment. 
Even if I'm not comfortable in the situation I find myself in, I can still find comfort and contentment in Christ. How is that possible? It all seems too hard, perhaps. Well, Paul makes this clear how it's possible in the next very well-known verse, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's a familiar verse. Uh, Actually, as I was researching it, the, the verse is actually stated in many different ways in the different translations of the Bible that we have. And if you've memorized this, you might have memorized a slightly different version. Uh, The NBA player, Steph Curry, uh, has this verse on his branded clothing and on his Under Armour uh, brand. And we often use this verse or we hear this verse used when we're talking about victory or about wanting success in, in some sort of situation. But actually, if we read the updated NIV, which is what Cass read from today, it translates this verse as, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. In context, the this is referring to being content. Paul is saying that he can be content in any situation because it is Christ who gives him strength. With regards to our circumstances, it means that no matter how unpleasant or bitter or unfortunate they might be, we can endure them and be at peace in them because of Jesus. My internal well-being doesn't have to depend on outside influences. It doesn't matter if I have everything or nothing. Because God never changes, and he is everything I need. He satisfies me and gives me purpose. He grants me the strength and the fortitude to face any situation and to persevere. When Paul was given a thorn in the flesh, he pleaded for God to remove it. Three times he prayed. But instead of removing it, God gave him the strength to endure it. 2 Corinthians 12.9 But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God never promises us a life free from hardship. In fact, we're told to to expect persecution. However, perhaps a greater miracle than just healing or removing us from the pain is the sufficiency of God's grace, strength, and power when we are weak. So much so that Paul says he delights in these weaknesses so that God's strength may be displayed through him. The author of Hebrews gives us another reason we can also always be content. Hebrews 13.5 says this, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. You don't need more money or stuff because you have the presence of God with you. You have his promise and his assurance that he will always be with you through thick and thin. Who needs more money or more things when you can have God? What could money possibly give to you that God cannot? Apparently, there is a true story about this Persian man named Ali Hafed. Ali owned a very large farm that had orchards, grain fields, and gardens. He was a wealthy, contented man. One day, a wise man from the east told this farmer, Ali, all about diamonds and how wealthy he would be if he owned a diamond mine. Ali went to bed that night a poor man, poor because he was discontented. Craving a mine of diamonds, he sold his farm to search for the rare stones. 
He traveled the world over, finally becoming so poor, broken, and defeated that he committed suicide. One day, the man who had purchased Ali Hafed's farm led his camel to, into the garden to drink. As his camel put its nose into the brook, the man saw a flash of light from the sands of the stream. He pulled out a stone that reflected all the hues of the rainbow. They were, of course, diamonds. The man had discovered the diamond mine of Golconda, apparently the most magnificent, magnificent mine in all of history. Had Ali Hafed remained at home and dug in his own garden, then instead of death in a strange land, he would have had acres of diamonds himself. The unfortunate part of this story is not so much that he was not able to find the untold riches that were lying in his own backyard. In fact, who knows if that would have been a good thing for him at all anyway. Uh, but the sad part of this story is that someone who had everything he needed to live contentedly was deceived into thinking that having more would have made him happier. He was not able to be content with what he had, and he, was, and he ended up paying the ultimate price for it. Similarly with us, if we can't find our contentment in God, then just like Ali, we will chase things that won't fulfill us, and our discontentment will rob us of the joy that we can experience in Him even today. If the promise of God being with us and never forsaking us is not enough for us to be content, then we will never be satisfied. There are two parts to being content with what you have materially. The first part is choosing not to focus on what you don't have. When we constantly think about what we're missing out on, we feed that part of our brain that says we can't live without it, and it robs us of our joy, just as Ali found. He couldn't sleep because he thought he was missing out on so much more. It'll gnaw away at us, and it may give rise to jealousy, envy, resentment, or bitterness. John the Baptist recognized this same issue when he addressed the Roman soldiers. They weren't content with their wages, so they would take advantage of others to get more. He, t he tells them in Luke 3.14, Then some soldiers asked him, And what should we do? He replied, Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Instead of focusing on what they lacked, they should have focused on the things that they had. And that's the second part to being content with what you have. It is to focus on what you do have, to be grateful for it, to be thankful and appreciative. In this passage, Paul expresses his thanks to the Philippians for giving him generously by rejoicing. Philippians 4.10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. He goes on and commends them for their generosity and their willing partnership in the gospel. Their gift is acknowledged as an act of worship, an acceptable and pleasing act of service to God. Paul's gratitude compels him to rejoice and to pray over them. And even as we sang earlier today, being content with what we have means that if we're in the land of plenty and streams of abundance flow, if the sun's shining and the world's all as it should be, we will still bless his name. But even if we're in the desert place, we're walking in the wilderness, perhaps on the road marked with pain and suffering, the darkness closing in, then still may we have the courage to sing, blessed be his name. That's the attitude someone who is content with what they have will have. Paul's first letter to Timothy gives us further reasons to find our contentment in God. 1 Timothy 6, 6-10 says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain. 
For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul makes clear that godliness with contentment is superior to amassing wealth. There's a benefit to simply being grateful for food and clothing, recognizing that our God provides all that we need. Paul warns Timothy in no uncertain terms of the dangers of allowing our desire for money to go unchecked. Look at the words that he uses to describe the allure of wealth. Temptation, trap, foolish, harmful desires, plunging into ruin and destruction, the roots of all kinds of evil, wandering from the faith, and many griefs. No doubt Paul has seen firsthand what the love of money can do to a man. He reminds Timothy that we came into the world empty-handed and that one day we will also leave the world empty-handed. Any material wealth that we accumulate in this lifetime will will ultimately amount to nothing. You can give it to your children, but even they won't be able to take it when they leave. See, the thing is, we don't really own the things that we think we have here in this lifetime. All the stuff that I say that I own is really just on loan to us for the vapor mist of time that we exist on this earth, and then we will have to return it all to God and give account for it. That's the principle of stewardship. A dad once gave his son two $1 coins as he went to Sunday school. He told the boy that he could give one coin to the offering and that he could keep the other coin to get an ice cream. As the boy walked down the street, he accidentally dropped one of the coins, which then rolled into a storm drain and disappeared. The boy looked for a moment down the drain and then slowly looked toward the sky, sighed and said, Well, God, there goes your dollar. Unlike this young man, we ought to realize that everything we have belongs to God. What I refer to as my house and my car, my dollars that I use for my ice cream, uh, are really his house and his car and his dollars, even if I squander them down the drain. If they're on loan to me from my master, then I better make sure that they're being invested in things that will please my master. If you went and gave someone a a whole heap of money to build a house and instead they used it to create their own fortune and did nothing to build your house, you'd be rightly disappointed. You'd be angry. In the same way, God has put us on this earth and given us the job of building his house, his church, growing his kingdom. Everything that we've been given, our time, our energy, our money, our possessions, our resources, They're to go towards doing that job. Not only that, but God promises that he'll give us everything we'll need, that he'll give us the strength to be content in every situation, that he'll give us sufficient grace to face it all, and that he will never leave us nor forsake us. What will he say to you at the end of your lifetime about what you have done with the resources that he has given to you? Will he say, like he said to Paul, well done, good and faithful servant? Or will he say like what he says in Haggai to those who are too preoccupied building their own houses instead of the house of God? Haggai 1, 4-6. to 6. 
Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. You see, they used their wealth on themselves, and it was never enough. It could never content them. It could never satisfy them. And instead of building something that would last, they may as well have put it in a purse with holes. From my own personal experience, I have never been more content than when I've been consciously choosing to follow God. There is a satisfaction and a fulfillment that I experience when I'm obedient to God and let Him work through me. It's even more satisfying than winning a basketball grand final or completing a marathon. Contentment is realized when you are fulfilling God's will for your life. It's the comfort of knowing that you're right where God wants you to be. It's doing something that counts for eternity and bearing fruit that will last. I gave a brief testimony the other week of when I went to the elderly visit and how I had the opportunity to share with a gentleman named Fred. Uh, that was, to me, a, a very God-given appointment. Uh, there was this sense that God wanted me to be there and that God had put, placed me there specifically so that I could share with him. And as I did that, there was this overwhelming sense that God was with me, that his spirit was there and at work in Fred's life. Even this past week, as I had the opportunity to catch up with various members of the church, and, and as we prayed for one another, the sense of being used by God and being led by His Spirit, Spirit was immensely fulfilling. Even when you're physically or mentally tired, there is always a revival of spirit when you're trusting in God and letting Him guide you. It turns my prayers from half-hearted lists of things into confident requests with real expectations that God will move. It makes His Word come alive and refreshes my soul. When I read it, I'm eager to find out more about what God wants to say, and sometimes it feels like He's written those words just for me. But the opposite is also true. When I've been far from God or just been doing life in my own strength instead of relying on Him, it's then that life becomes so hard. That's when it's easy to look for contentment in all the wrong places. It's in those times that I lose my sense of purposefulness. Work becomes just work instead of worship as it was meant to be. When we neglect our relationship with God, then our satisfaction in Him dwindles and other things take His place. For me, I tend to lose my patience more easily. I'll get frustrated by things that don't really matter. Temptations become harder to resist. The spiritual disciplines of praying and reading His Word become a chore. Perhaps you can relate. I'm less considerate of others and generally unaware of God's promptings. How true it is when Jesus says in John 15, Apart from me, you can do nothing. The reason Paul could suffer for Christ as he did is because he knew his mission. He knew where God had called him. Whether that was being attacked by a mob, whether it was on board a sinking ship, or chained, in a Ro chained up in a Roman prison, Paul was obedient and confident of his calling in Christ. Truly to Paul, to live was Christ and to die was gain. He was content in the face of any trial because his focus was not on earthly things. Instead, like it says in Philippians 3.14, it was to press on toward the goal, to win the prize for which God had called him heavenward. 
If you want to learn the secret of contentment, then ask yourself this question. Are you doing what God wants you to do? Some of you might ask, well, how do I know what God wants me to do? Well, fortunately, God has given us the answer in his word. You don't need to rely on me or anyone else to tell you. Here's one place you might like to start, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. As you trust in him and you become obedient to those things, God will reveal more and more of himself to you. I suspect that there are some of us, myself included, who need to go back to just opening his word and reading it with fresh eyes, reading his word and asking, how can I apply what you're teaching me today? So let's honestly evaluate. How is your pursuit of the things of God going in your life right now? Is he really your number one priority? Are you seeking him with all your heart, being obedient to his call on your life? If he were to come down right now, if he, were a, if he were to manifest his presence before us and he asked you those questions, could you answer him confidently with a clear conscience? One thing that I questioned when I read this passage and really made me think was, why does Paul say that he had to learn the secret of being content? Why didn't he say he just knew what the secret was? Well, I guess when something is learnt, it means that it doesn't come naturally. It's not something that you automatically grasp just because you've listened to a sermon to it, on it, or, or read a passage about it. You could read a book on how to swim, but you can't really say that you can actually swim until you've gotten into the water and swum. In the same way, learning to find our contentment in God is going to be a learning process. It's a process that occurs over time as we continually submit ourselves to his will and trust in his strength. It's a process that involves trusting that our contentment is not found or dependent on improving our circumstances or owning more stuff. It's believing that contentment can truly be found in any and every circumstance, even the one that I'm currently facing. It's relying on God's enabling strength to face every situation that I really can do all things through him who gives me strength. It's trusting in his promises that his grace is sufficient, that he is always with, always with us, that he will neither leave us nor forsake us, and that godliness with contempt is truly great gain. It's recognizing that I am just a steward, entrusted with the task of building his church. It's daily submitting myself to his will and finding the joy and contentment in being used by him. I also wonder why Paul says that it's a secret and I guess it's because it's something that is hidden from the majority of the world. It's really counterintuitive and unconventional. It's difficult for us to grasp. But it certainly isn't to remain a secret. It's clearly written on the pages of Scripture. And God willing, it's something that we can all put into practice with his help. There was a Christian poet in the 1800s, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, who said this, God's gifts put man's best dreams to shame. God's gifts put man's best dreams to shame. May we seek this gift of contentment that God offers us and elevate it higher than our own human desires. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and humble ourselves before you.
God, we want to repent of the times and, and perhaps even now where we are searching for contentment in places other than yourself. Uh, forgive us, God, for thinking that we could replace you with stuff or replace you with just changing our circumstances when in fact you want us to find contentment in you. You want us to be fully satisfied and to delight in you. Father, I pray that we would not allow these desires that we have, our human fleshly desires, to rub us, rob us of the joy that, that you want to give us. Father, I pray that we would turn to you and that we would choose to rely on your strength. And Father, we thank you that you give us all that we need, that your promises are real and certain, and that we can trust in you. We can trust that you'll always be with us. We can trust that godliness with contentment really is great gain. Father, I pray that you would help us to be good stewards of the stuff that you've entrusted us with. Lord, I pray when it comes to money and, and the stuff that we own, Father, that we will hold onto that loosely, knowing that you've given it to us for just a short time. And Father, I pray that you give us wisdom, that you give us courage to use it on things that will truly please you that we'll be more concerned with what you care about than about building our own fortunes. And Father, I pray that you would use us, all of us, to further your kingdom. Father, I pray that we would submit ourselves delightfully to your will. That, Father, we would find how much joy and contentment can be really found when we serve you. Father, as we were encouraged this morning, may we taste and see that you are good. And Lord, for those of us who are really struggling, God, I know that there are circumstances that we face that are really hard. And so, God, I pray that you would give them your supernatural strength, that, Father, as they turn to you, that you would comfort them, that, God, that you would help them in their time of need, that your grace really would be sufficient for everything, that they might persevere and endure, and that they might glorify you through it. Father, I thank you that we can trust you, uh, that we can leave all this in your capable hands. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you very much, Jono. Um, if I just want to invite the, uh, the prayer team up, just the prayer team up, I would encourage you, like we did last week, uh, after hearing that word from our brother Jono, just to pray for each other just to pray for each other, encourage each other. Um, I'll just close in prayer. And don't leave without talking with someone, without sharing with someone, without praying for someone, uh, because we're all in a unique situation. And I think the secret of contentment, I think, is very appropriate for us as God's people. So I'll just close in a word of prayer now. Father, we thank you so much for the word communicated to us through your servant Jonathan this morning. We pray, Father, we will take that on board, that we will find the secret of our contentment in you and in you alone. Father, help us to prioritize our lives correctly, seeking first your kingdom, your righteousness, righteousness above all else. Father, help us to see for the things eternal, the things that will last to eternity. So we ask you to dismiss us now. We ask, Father, that you will stir our hearts to seek you above all else. Father, I pray you will just help us as we move into this coming week. Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or imagine according to the power that works within us. 
and to you be glory and majesty, both now and to the end of the age. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.